Father, while we were singing, my heart was drawn to the scene in heaven and glory when John was there. And it was announced, Behold the Lion of Judah. And I turned and looked, and there was a lamb. Lamb that was slain. Lord, we do not have the words to convey the praise and the honor and the glory. I don't know what a highest praise is. I pray that when I stand with John on that day, that I will. I'll be able to experience and provide the pure and highest praise that's due your name. Because you are holy, holy, holy. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. So this, this past week, we began conducting the, the Grief Share support group. And if you're interested, um, you're welcome to come to any one of the sessions or all of the sessions. It's, uh, it's not a closed group. And while I hadn't put any conscious effort into this at all when I was uh, scheduling and putting the preaching calendar together, it just so happens that the week we started the support group... And this week, 1 Thessalonians four thirteen through 18, one cannot look at the text and not think about death and the grave, because that's the topic. I mean, and it's a painful one. And this subject may have an effect on you. It's not my intent to bring to your mind pain, but rather with the pastoral heart of Paul as he tells us to encourage you. And I just wanted to let you know that in advance. So in 1989, Myron is my best friend for over 15 years, the army buddy who was able to tolerate the anger, really, and rage that I had and lead me to the Lord, died. And I was with him when he died. I conducted his funeral and his interment, as I have many people, including many that I love. And my, my grief was, was profound, and I, I wondered more than anything why the world had not stopped to take notice. It was as if the sky did not care The birds did not care. It seemed like my world was forever altered and no one else's, or very few others. I regularly visited his grave, and I would go and sit with him and talk as if he were there. One day I was walking across the the graveyard, and I saw... um, a bunch of little toys and, and fresh flowers. And I went over to, to take a look. And I looked at the epitaph. And it was a six-year-old boy who had died and was buried there. And then I noticed the date. And this little boy had died nearly 30 years 
before. And yet someone still grieved. It was at that moment that a thought was forever burned into my mind. It has always been this way. But I never knew it. The grief and loss that death brings uh, do not hit us really hard until someone close to us dies. And then it seems as if our entire world is turned upside down. It's only then that we begin to understand that our struggle is against many things, hopelessness and despair, not the least of them. Words cannot describe the devastation of that kind of loss. Those of you who know this loss know those who do not, I cannot explain. Most of us would rather not talk about it um, or even think about it. Some would say that it's bad to even talk about. It's unhealthy. But given that death surrounds us, how do we cope with it? I mean, how do we respond if we were to lose a parent, or a spouse, a child, a dear friend? How should we deal with all the pain and the sorrow that it brings? And how will we respond to the reality of death when it's my turn, when it's your turn? Is there any comfort? Is there any hope? Is there anything we can cling to at all? And the answer, of course, is a resounding yes. There's comfort and hope. Open your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 18. Paul's pastoral heart is on full display here. Where he says to them, but, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about, about those who are asleep. That you may not grieve as others who do have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Paul tells us in, in no uncertain terms that the grounds of our hope in the face of that enemy, death, lies in our Lord Jesus Christ. As we begin this section, let me define a few terms. First, the word sleep. 
in uh, verse 13 and fallen asleep in, in verse 14. The word asleep, uh, fall asleep, uh, rest, those were common ways in the New Testament even today uh, for us to refer to death. Uh, in the Old Testament, we read that David rested with his fathers. We, we read that Solomon rested with his fathers and so on. You can see this. You may not know this, but the word uh, cemetery comes from the Greek word koimetrion, which means a place to sleep. In Latin, it's dormant. So if you've ever, not dormant, although that's associated, dormit. So if you've ever been to college and been in a dormitory, that's where you sleep place of sleeping. So graveyard in Latin is a dormant. As believers, it's important for us, it's essential for us to understand that falling asleep or dying only happens to the body. It only happens to this, flesh and blood. Your body is the only thing that dies. Your spirit, your immaterial part, cannot die. Therefore, since the body dies, when you talk, when you read of the resurrection, what's being resurrected is the body. And while it may seem obvious, don't, do not let this point slip by easily. Many people, even Christians, have been taught that when we die... We go into some sort of slumber, some sort of sleep, some kind of limbo, something where we're not altogether there. Yeah, it's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Paul also says that when the body dies, you are immediately transported into the presence of the Lord. It's instantaneous. I mean, and that is what, really, when you think about it, that's what makes a Christian funeral different from others. That's what makes it tolerable. In fact, that's what can make it, at least at moments, something of a celebration, because even though the person's body has died, you know if you're a believer, that that person is free. Free from suffering, free from pain, free from the cares of this life and in the presence of the Lord. And life can be painful and challenging. I certainly don't need to stand up here and tell you that. But we have the hope of the garden restored, we're told in Revelation that he will wipe away every tear. You know, I love that. Uh, let me tell you why I love that. It's not in the passive. It's not every tear will be wiped away. By who? By, by, by your fellow resurrected believers? By angels? The Lord, listen, the Lord himself will wipe away your tears. 
There's no room for sorrow or sadness there. So sleep is a, it's a euphemism. It's an idiom that tells us something that refers to the body, not the spirit. Verse 13, he says, we do not want you to be uninformed. Some versions may say ignorant, to not know something. In other words, Paul wants us to know that those who have passed away, those who have fallen asleep, those who have died, only their body died. Their spirit lives. They are with the Lord. And why does he want us to know this? The text is very clear. It's so that you do not grieve as others do. And how do they grieve? They grieve without hope. This is a tremendous passage. This is a passage that I've read scores of times at believers' funerals because it tells you and it tells me that there is hope beyond this life. Now, let me be very clear about this. It doesn't mean that we don't grieve. Oh, we do. We grieve when we lose a loved one. We should. That's normal. It's indicative of how we cared about them in life. What Paul says is not that we don't grieve. What Paul says is we don't grieve without hope. Paul says that this is not the end. But those without hope, you've got to understand this. I mean, think about this. This is the best that they will ever have. This is it. This is as good as it gets. This is as bad as it gets for the believer. So why was he talking about this in the first place? Clearly, when he went through, and he he had a whirlwind trip to Thessalonica. He got there, he was there possibly uh, as few as three weeks. Well, I have been here for, I don't know, five years plus, Whoever has been preaching from this pulpit for the last 30, 40, if you stretch it all the way back from a historical perspective, you end up back in Ireland. You end up maybe then over to Germany or whatever, whatever. And you know what? In all that time, sometimes we don't get to everything. (laughs) Paul told them a couple of things. Listen, what you got to understand, he tells them is this. The Lord is coming back. And he could come back at any time. You know, that's a hallmark of Christian faith. It's amazing to me how many denominations, how many people don't believe that the Lord's return is imminent. And imminent, by the way, don't get wrapped around the axle about this. Imminent does not mean soon. Then a couple of thousand years last I checked. Well, it's just short. But you know what? Imminent means there is nothing prohibiting at all his return. It could be during this service. It could be next week, next year, five years, whatever. It just means that he is coming back. And that's what, so that's what Paul told him. He's coming back and he is coming back. His coming is uh, imminent. And so what happened was, 
after he left Thessalonica, as is the case, some of these people who have trusted Christ die. Now you have to understand where they were coming from. The best in their mind, at best, was Hades. Worst is truly unthinkable. But then there was also annihilation. They, they didn't have any notion whatsoever of resurrection. Understand this. They don't have the 2,000 years of Christian history embedded in their minds that you and I do. They were coming from a place where Jesus is coming back. He's coming back in an imminent way. Now, someone that I love has died. They're gone. Did they miss it? So now Paul has to explain this, and he says this in verse 14. He says, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We experientially don't know what a message of mercy and love and compassion this was to the Thessalonians. When they read this, it's like they're going to be there. They didn't miss it. Those who have died with faith in Jesus Christ and His finished work on the cross will return with the Lord. But then there's an obvious question. How is that? How how is that? They died. Listen, I put them in the ground. I put dirt on top of them. Uh, How is this going to be? Then Paul gives these, these beautiful words about resurrection. In verse 16, for the Lord himself will defend, uh, will descend from heaven with a cry of command. It's a military term. In other words, I don't know what he says, but it's going to be something along the words of arise. Attention. (laughs) With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise. They will rise. They will be resurrected. Sometimes I'm asked whether cremation should be considered a Christian burial. I mean, shouldn't our bodies be buried while awaiting the resurrection? Not only that, facing east as well. Uh, Which is a real surreal thing, right? Uh, let me say this, not just about the cremation, but it certainly includes that. The Thessalonian believers who had died, who the living Thessalonians who had written to Paul and said, what about my loved ones who have died? Their, their bodies have long since turned to dust. There's no trace of them that remain. Christians under Nero and others were burned to ashes. The sea is littered with Christians who died in war, accidents, and so forth. Um, 
do not think lightly <laughs> that it is a problem for someone who created the universe ex nihilo <laughs> and the time-space continuum and keeps the sun burning at 27 million degrees. I think at that point, centigrade or Fahrenheit don't matter. <laughs> it's hot. <laughs> Is going to have any trouble finding the atoms <laughs> of our bodies. And not only that, when we think about that and the difficulty there, we're focusing actually on the wrong thing. Do you think it difficult for him to find that, put back that back together? Or is it more difficult to give life? Yeah, I'm going to go with the life thing. There is no limit to God in any way, shape, or form. I mean, the, the most common mistake of any First year, uh, how many years have I been? 40th year, whatever, theologian, student, is to limit God. He is the Lord God Almighty. And He died on Jesus Christ, experienced death on the cross that we might live. He will have no difficulty for those who died before us giving them an incredible new body verse 17 Paul says then we who are alive and remain so this isn't done he says you were worried about those who have fallen asleep whether they had missed this or not no not only have they not missed it we who are alive and remain who are still on the earth when the Lord returns, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord. As it relates to our understanding of this movement of God, this is one of the most important verses. This is a, a key verse here to our understanding of this whole thing. And I want to highlight a couple things. I don't know what your version says. They say different things, but the ESV, uh, something that you might read is caught up. We will be, we will be caught up. And because that's a crucial word. It's where we get our word um, rapture. Now, I, I know that the term rapture has fallen on Hard times in some circles, even evangelical circles these days. I mean, one of the chief complaints is the word rapture does not appear in the English Bible. So what? Lots of Latin words don't appear in the English Bible. It's a Latin word in case you didn't, didn't know. But it does appear in the Latin Bible. In fact, that's, what, that's the word Jerome used when he translated the Vulgate in 480 AD. The English phrase, caught up, he translated that as rapturus in the Vulgate. The meaning of the word in the Greek and the meaning of rapture in Latin and the meaning of caught up in English are identical. 
the meaning is the same. Those two English words, caught up, are the translation of a single Greek verb, which means to seize or to carry off. That's what it means. And we, we use it in that sense, even in English. You can go out to the mountains, and you can look up into the night sky, and you can see stars, which you used to could see in Houston... Used to could see, used to could see. <laughs> when I was a boy, the Milky Way just splattered across the sky here. You're lucky if you can see Jupiter. And you might say that I was enraptured. I was carried away by the beauty of nature or the the beauty of the moment. In the same uh, way, you have this notion of being carried away, but Paul is talking about you'll be, it'll be you that's carried away. But he makes a second point here. He says, and then as the Lord in the same way to come back with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So he's talking about there's going to be an event Whatever that means, it's going to start with the dead. It's going to end with us. We're going to go up into the air and we are going to meet the Lord. I can only imagine this was a similar scene that was painted by the gospel writers when the Lord ascended into the clouds. And here now he's coming in the clouds to receive his church. The interesting thing is, is there's no symbolic language here. That Paul is using straightforward language. He's laying out the simple fact that Jesus is coming back. And when he does, the people who have died will go first, and then we who are alive will remain. And that will be in the twinkling of an eye. Now, I don't know what a twinkling of an eye is. People have tried to measure that, but it's fast. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's real fast, and we're going to be caught up. And you see Paul's pastoral heart here because he intends this message to be one of comfort and encouragement to the believers. People have died. Those who left are left behind are tormented. And they wanted to have help. In 18, he says, therefore encourage one, of the, uh, one another with these words. And I hope... I hope that ultimately, even when you look in the, the face of death, which you ever have, you know is it's, uh, it's overwhelming. I want to say ugly, but it's more than that. It's far more than ugly. But with Jesus Christ, this isn't all that there is. Jesus is coming back. A little bit of theological thought here for just a second. There's often some confusion about the different aspects of the Lord's uh, return that, that you read about, you hear about. You can't be in, uh, you can't talk about uh, this without um, coming into lots of different opinions. I mean, many believe that there's no difference between the rapture and the, the second coming. And I don't have time to explain all of that, certainly what my position is. 
But uh, I'll just say that, yeah, it's not that simple. To put it as simply as I can, the rapture is when Jesus comes back for his church. I would love to spend the message, and who knows, maybe I will at some point, on the marriage customs. And once you get a hold of the marriage customs in the time of Paul, in the time of Jesus, all of this stuff just... It just dovetails right in. It's hand in glove, you know. And the cult, they all knew this. It, it, it's, it's a mystery maybe to us, but it was not to them. Uh, he comes for his church. When he comes, the second coming, the parousia, he comes to destroy those gathered at Armageddon to establish his rule and his reign on earth. Now, for those uh, who hold to the rapture, of course, which I do, there's been a long debate about when it's going to occur in, in relation to Daniel's 70th week, or as it's known, the, the Great Tribulation, a seven-year period of time, Jacob's trouble. Now, I believe that the church will be caught away prior to the Great Tribulation, and again, with all of this, there's not enough time to explain, but just a few things. And we're going to talk a few, little bit more about this in some of these other uh, passages as well. Because in view of Christ's return, live in hope, right? Uh, first and foremost, the, Paul taught, and uh, the Lord himself taught, uh, that the Lord's coming is imminent. As I mentioned, that could, it could happen any time. We don't know. No one knows the day. No one knows the hour. It could be any time. It is imminent. If there's anything else on the clock prior to his return, then you might as well just set an Excel spreadsheet and say, well, he's coming back on this day. And some people do that, which is, I think, folly. He could come any time. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encouragement means comforting. It means to bring about comfort to someone. And this final statement only makes sense if the catching away, if the, this seizing occurs prior to the Great Tribulation. And I'll tell you, there's not a lot of comfort in telling people that, oh, by the way, uh, the Lord is going to come to you after a seven-year period which, during which the wrath of God is going to devastate the whole planet. Billions will die. Okay? Now, I want you to listen very carefully to this point. I do not hold to the pre-tribulation position uh, because the others might be tough. Ooh, we might have to suffer. I, last time I checked, there's, it, yeah, if I could just distill the suffering in this room, that's probably enough. Of course we're going to suffer. We already do. The question is not about suffering, and I'll be clear about that here, more clear in just a moment. People who argue that the People who hold the position I do because they don't want to experience the Great Tribulation is nonsense. It's nonsense. It's not because 
we're going to suffer. And it's not because billions of people are going to die. When was the last time you checked the estimates of what happened in Europe during the bubonic plague? 50, up to 50% of the entire continent died. Okay. It's not about death. It's not about suffering. It is about the nature of the great tribulation itself. Revelation 15.1, among many other, uh, many places, tells us that the great tribulation is a specific time when the wrath of God will be visited upon the earth. The, the, listen, this is, this is absolutely key to this whole thing. The, the tribulation is a time of the wrath of God. And I'm convinced after many years of talking to people that that truth has not wholly entered into their soul yet. And I will preach it from the pulpit. <laughs> if you sit across me from the desk, I will speak it. I will speak it to you. But there are people, many, many believers, who think that God at the judgment is going to like play their sins on a big screen. It's like you're going to have to pay for this with your shame and with your guilt. It's like you've got to do something extra in order for this to be true. Got to be some form of punishment for a sin when we stand before God. In chapter 1, verse 10 in 1 Thessalonians, Paul told us something already, that God would rescue us from the wrath to come. In just a few short paragraphs, which we'll look at next week, Paul tells us that we're not appointed to wrath. I always want to be clear and simple, but not simplistic. So I want to make this as simple as I can. Uh, ask yourself, follow along with me in your own mind. Did Jesus Christ die for your sins? Did he die for the sin of the world? And if he did, how much of the cost did he pay? 50%? 25? 99.9%. And by my good works, I'll, I'll get that other. Did he pay the total cost? When he said it is finished, what did he mean? So since, you know what he meant. So since you have been redeemed, you have been declared righteous by God based on the Son of God, taking what? See, the suffering of Christ on the cross could have been equaled by many. Do you think Christ was the only one who was crucified and who bore it as well as he? I don't think so. But no one could bear the wrath of God. And that's what he bore on the cross. And that's what you have to understand. The wrath of God was forever and always buried in Christ. 
We are not appointed. You will never, if you trust Christ, you will never know the, a day, a second, a moment, a twinkling of the wrath of God. It does not exist for you. We have to think carefully before we argue in any way that something else must yet be extracted from us to complete salvation. I'm not talking about sanctification. I'm talking about salvation. Jesus intentionally, deliberately, and consequentially faced the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to. End of sentence. Full stop. Period. My sins... Oh, the bliss. When's the last time you had bliss? Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sins, not in part, but the whole, are nailed to the cross. And I bear them no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O oh my soul. When you believe that Jesus can come back at any time, it changes not only the way you live, but also the way you die. Bottom line is this. With Christ in your life, you have endless hope. But without Christ, you have Hopeless end. Which do you choose? A hopeless end? Or an endless hope? Father, we can barely even begin to comprehend in any way. Were it not for your word and your spirit to instruct, to teach, and to guide, we would be as floundering as anyone. And the only things that we can understand about you are the things that you have chosen to reveal to us. And you have revealed to us that you are a God of love, mercy, and compassion. That you provided a pathway for that wretched event in the garden to be restored so that the garden, in reality and in the reality of our own lives, could be come a reality for us in the future. We thank you and we praise you. And we pray that while we do have sadness at the loss of those who have gone before, that that sadness does not ultimately overwhelm because we know that one day we will be reunited. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.